0: Welcome to Mindset Meets Mastery with Arlene Gale. We're talking about the stories we tell ourselves, the mindsets, myths, and misinformation that can hold us back, and then turning our focus to action steps that bring about success mastery in business and life. The goals are to define success on our own terms and to master that success without excuses or apologies. Everybody, I'm so excited for today's guest and today's program because he is a success because he has a mindset that has directed him against all odds to be a success. But let me set this up a little bit. Have you ever said to yourself, oh, I got this, I got this, there's no way I can't be hired for that job, and lo and behold, you get let down. Things don't go the way you think they should. Have you ever felt like, oh, I got the talent, I got the skills, I got the gifts, I got I got everything it takes. There's I, I know I can make a difference. I know it. I just know it. And again, you get let down. Or maybe even worse than that, maybe they see your talents and your skills and things still don't work out. And you let go, you get let go. I think that all of us can think about scenarios in our life where we've been You've, we've set ourselves up for success and then we've been let down. because I think at least in my experience that it's not what if life throws us a curveball. It's not what if we get laid, uh, laid off or you know pushed aside or whatever. It's when I get disappointed, when someone lets me down, when something lets me down. When that happens, what do I do next? Because to me, the successful people that I've met, it's all about what is the mindset that you have when things like this happen to you, when life throws you in a direction that you didn't necessarily think that you wanted or needed to go. Um, What is the mindset that successful people have to be able to continue to push through towards the original goal? or maybe to adjust direction so that they can maybe do something else or do things a little differently. And what is the mindset that might derail you completely? What throws you off track? Well, my guest today is very successful and he is no stranger to the mindsets that we've talked about today. He's kept moving towards his dream or he's readjusted a changed course moved in a different direction, and then come back. Whatever it takes, he's done what's necessary. So we're going to discuss how the mindsets of persistence, determination, grace, wisdom, and love (laughs) translate into the successful life that NFL record holder Nick Lowry has managed to lead. But let me introduce you to Nick first. Some of you may Know Nick as Nick the Kick. I love that name. So he spent 15 years with the National Football League's Kansas City Chiefs and became the all-time leading scorer and Hall of Famer for the Chiefs. Nick Lowry still holds the record today for the highest-scoring NFL place kicker with 1,466 points. And he's also the Kansas City Chiefs record holder for the longest field goals of 58 yards which in and of itself might've been pretty awesome, but he's done it twice. <laughs> he's a three-time pro bowler. And, I, and as if that, I mean, you would think that would be enough for one person, but no, no. <laughs> Nick's mindset has driven him to earn a master's degree, which is a first for a pro athlete. And he earned that from the Kennedy School of Government at Harvard University. He served with three presidents as an advisor on youth and drug policy. And Nick Lowry is the winner of the most prestigious humanitarian award an NFL player can receive for his community service work and for his foundations. So we're gonna talk about all of that, but first we're gonna say, hello, Nick, welcome.
1: Well, hello, Arlene, it's an honor to be on here. And uh, it was actually 14 years with the Chiefs, 18 years in the NFL. Um, But yeah, the thing I'm most proud of, uh, because you brought it up several times, is that adversity was absolutely, if if adversity is an ingredient in uh, your recipe for life, uh, adversity has to be part of it. And there was plenty of that. And it only made me better. So uh, I'd love to explore that and just share some of my experience with that.
0: Yeah, so and and, and we're going to get there. But I want to did you always want to play football? And were you always wanting to be a place kicker?
1: You know, um, I have been so blessed. And that's, by the way, that's another thing, is a choice we make every day to focus on those things. Like right now, I feel this emotion because how grateful I am for life. And uh, when we get caught in the how difficult life is, which (laughs) everybody's joking about 2020, you know, being a swear word, you know, yeah, uh, Being able to still remember and intentionally with discipline, remind yourself, best word in the English language, refresh the mind. Remind this, yourself how, how grateful you, you are for the blessings you have. So
0: I'm
1: blessed because starting with great parents, a father who was in the first group of Fulbright Scholars after going to Stanford, after being a reconnaissance pilot for General Patton. In World War II, the last six months of which were flying 32 missions, uh, war-torn Germany, uh, in a Little Piper Cub at 3,000 feet, literally circling enemy positions where the bombs from his own people, he was calling into that very area. And his little Piper Cub had no armor. And literally when the bombs came close, the entire plane would jump. He lost two friends, two to enemy to, not to enemy to friendly fire my mother was in uh the first world class of women at oxford and yeah. my dad went to london after the war in this exchange of a hundred of the best and brightest from england to america in this case my father from america to england to london my mother is helping run that program with a man named alan piper and yeah. he spent um two years the second of which was with uh, arguably, very arguably, the foremost historian of the entire 20th century, Arnold Toynbee. And my dad actually was going to be on the cover of Life magazine with Arnold Toynbee talking about the first Fulbright program, which was, you know, dedicated to having an exchange of English and American scholars in this post-World War Europe, um, where England and America were going to be helping lead, lead the free world. So, uh, I grew up in Europe, in Germany, in England. My dad was chief of station for the CIA back uh-huh. in the 40 years of, of uh, James Bond. My dad literally, uh, the Sean Connery James Bond, I'm sorry, he's the best. My dad literally uh, met with MI5 and MI6 every Monday. Um, and uh, I never knew how senior he was till he died 10 years ago at his funeral. Uh, two of his former colleagues... Um, were there, and at the reception afterwards, I said, so how senior was my dad? They said, your dad wasn't senior. Your dad was the man. And, uh, you know, yet he kept that silent, that pride, that sense of service to not, uh, to deprive your children of such a beautiful bit of information because of your notion of service and sacrifice, which, as Tom Brokaw would have said, was evident in the greatest generation. So I was always like that. Great parents. And we didn't have necessarily that much money, but we had enough, uh, all of it going to our education. And uh, surrounding uh, myself, um, uh, because of that, uh, I was lucky to have great mentors that helped me look at service, helped me look at contribution. And so when I made it in the NFL, finally, it was only after giving up a job working in the United States Senate uh, on aviation deregulation uh, and aviation safety. So. Very different background and journey to the NFL. Uh, but, but the lessons still applied to getting a job in the Senate, to getting a job, if you will,
0: in the National Football League. Okay, so what I'm getting from this are two things. One, nobody was going to feel sorry for you and your family if you made excuses, right? They were just going to push you back out there, right?
1: Well, you know, I think there was – it wasn't a hard-edged, you know, sledgehammer uh culture but it certainly was um you know find a way and brothers who were five years older than me had 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 trouble finding their way because it was right in the middle of the heart of the demonstrations against the Vietnam War Mm -hmm. and I think they struggled to find their purpose and so one of the blessings for me was our family Arlene was two sets of twins so I had two older twin brothers and then I had a twin sister oh wow and we got to uh, witness our brothers, and, and for me, it was just saying, Whatever happens, I'm not going to wait for manna from heaven, or in the great Greek tragedies, uh, Deus Ex Machina, you know, that somehow God yeah. would come out and solve my problems. It was going to be about just putting myself out there again and again and again and again and again and again, and again. as long and as. And again, if you had to, right? And, and, and that's why. Uh, One of my great heroes in history is Winston Churchill because uh, not too many people realize how easily we could have lost World War II and how his capacity to inspire the British first and especially those amazing um, airmen to defend this tiny island against the entirety of Europe now, which had been conquered by Hitler. And to believe, to believe that they could endure and then finally turn it around, um, you know, that idea of persistence and character. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Arnold Toynbee, by the way, um, look him up, T O Y N B E E, Arnold Toynbee. He had a theory of history, which I love because it really was about character. His uh, notion of history was called challenge and response. And he looked, in 14 volumes over 30 years, from 1932 to 1962, Arnold Twainby wrote a study of history, three million words, <laughs> wow. before there were computers and fax machines, et cetera. And he looked at challenging response to define the qualities or lack thereof of the 21 great civilizations, wow. which really challenging response is what this show, I think, is about it's about that we will as you said in in the beginning uh we will always have adversity we'll always have challenges isn't that great Mm -hmm. because it tests what we believe in it tests our fortitude it tests our clarity of purpose and our response which is i use the word remind the other side of that is creativity our ability to creatively come with a response that we never may have known before the response was needed and demanded digs out of us these new qualities. And for those listening, I have to say, you know, it's, it's so much harder than one says it, but this adversity teaches us and brings, it's a gift to teach us how much more still we have within us.
0: Right. Well, and you, you know, the other thing I was going to say is you've used the word finally, finally, finally several times. And in my introduction, I talk about all these great achievements that you had. So, you know, that might give a person the impression that, you know, oh, things were easy for him. But tell us they weren't because you didn't go straight into the NFL and stay there. There were some redirections. Give us an overview of what that part of your life was like. Well, you know, I was coming from an
1: Ivy League school. I played at Dartmouth. That was all Ivy League and all New England. But um, the commitment and the focus and priority, of course, in the Ivy League is absolutely your education. And I want to thank Jay Crowd Hamill, who was my head coach, wonderful human being, uh, who really made sure that it always was about our education. Um, But I wasn't totally prepared, and I knew I wasn't. Uh, I just knew as a kicker coming into the NFL, I would have to adapt and uh, that if I made my kicks, eventually I would make it in the NFL. But while I knew that, I didn't realize it would take rejections 11 times by eight different NFL teams, which means three teams actually rejected me twice. Yikes. Um, and, uh, and, and it was more and more frustrating each time because the closer I got, and by the way, this is the biblical uh, principle as well, the closer we get to our, our purpose or part of our purpose, The harder the work is, the harder, the more frustrating it can be. But that actually is a sign that we're getting close. And um, in the end, I uh, had taken a job because I thought it was over, um, working for Senator Bob Packwood of Oregon on aviation safety and deregulation, the Olympic boycott. This is 1980. And uh, I was on a committee with 11 attorneys and myself and Christine Wilkes, who was a 4.0 from UVA, whose father was the congressional liaison for Jimmy Carter to Congress and secretary. So it was an amazing job. And yet I get this call, Arlene, out of the blue, uh, the first week after the season finished. Those first round of playoff games are the wild card games. And I get a call from someone I'd never met, never heard of before, named Jim Shaw. Now, I already had two contracts on my desk for the Cleveland Browns and um, the New York Jets, and I just, I just didn't want to, I just wanna, didn't want to do it. I didn't feel right. And this man calls and hey, Nick, it's Jim Shop. I just had back surgery. Otherwise, I would have called you sooner than this. Uh, but you know, we really think you have a potential. And Marv Levy, who would go on, by the way, parenthetically, to become a Hall of Fame coach with Buffalo, but uh, he at that point was a very good coach for us, thank God. And he said Marv Levy appreciates kickers in the kicking game. And I said, thanks so much, but um, I've got a great job. And I said, maybe another time, and I hung up. And as I hung up, (laughs) I want all of you to think about moments when you go, oh, what have I done? What are you gonna do with that? Um, I hung up and then went, I think I blew it. What do I do? And I I had a mentor. So mentors make a huge difference because- Absolutely. Go, Nick, this is what you're feeling if you're having trouble meandering through your multitude of feelings about, gosh, I've got this great job in Washington, but what do I do? What do I do? And he said, Nick, you'll always wonder if you don't find out what they had to to offer. So here I had to figure out Jim Schaaf. How do I spell his name? Don't know how to spell his name. There's no cell phone. There's no uh, Google. And I just guessed that his name was James Schaaf, S-C-H-A-A-F. I called information, and in Kansas City. And they said, uh, well, there are two numbers. I called the first, he wasn't there. Then I thought, oh, he's in the hospital. That's right, he had back surgery. So I said, is there a hospital with the same first three numbers? They said, "Um, no, I can't do, oh, wait a minute, try this. I tried that, and it wasn't there. And I said, where would he be if he had back surgery? And one hour after the stranger called me, I found Jim Schaaf, the general manager for the Kansas City Chiefs in his hospital room at Research Hospital in Kansas City, which blew him away, by the way. And we talked for an hour. And a week later, they flew me into Kansas City, snowy Kansas City. I'm going against, let's add a little bit of drama to this. Not just that I gave up a great job in the Senate. I'm going against the greatest kicker in the history of the National Football League at that point, Jan Stenerud, who was a big star in the Super Bowl and was a living legend. And yet, yet, I just knew it was my time. And uh, they brought, I quit that job on May 1st. I worked February, March, April, then drove out to Kansas City in my new Volkswagen Scirocco, 1977, baby. Life in the fast lane. <laughs> yeah. And just worked really hard. And, and the end of that month, because training camp wasn't for another seven weeks, I realized I had to be better. Think about this, all of you, in your level of expectation of how good you have to be. Because I was really clear, I'm going to have to outkick this legend every day, twice a day, every practice, at everything, every day, without exception. And yet somehow I was at a point only because of all those rejections where that made sense and I was ready for it. So I think one of the gifts of adversity, if you stick with it and you never, never, never give up, as Winston Churchill would say, is you find yourself in places you've never been before where you just are no longer intimidated. And here's another ironic twist to that. By the way, my Chiefs played last night. They won the Super Bowl this year, so it's a beautiful thing. And their owner now is a guy named Clark Hunt. Well, Clark Hunt was a 16-year-old ball boy charting me every day, every kick, get off, how quickly I kicked it, and whether it went through or not, from how far, every day, kick after kick after kick against Jan Stennerud, And he's the one that told his father, the legendary Lamar Hunt, which is uh, the name of the trophy that you get when you win the American Football League Championship, American Football Conference Championship. And he's the one after about a month that said, you know, I think Nick's going to beat out Jonas Denner. So um, that adversity also was coupled with timing because other coaches had seen me and I was kicking really well the year before, but they just found a reason not to take me. But Marv not only had to take me, he had to cut Jan Stetterup, who'd been there for 13 years, and he was like a father figure to all the other teammates. Wow. You know, at, at at 24, I looked at this 36-year-old like him as being so old. let <laughs> see, I laugh at now. Yeah, but,
0: now, yeah.
1: <laughs> but Marv Levy had the, had the courage uh, to weather the storm of criticism because the entire town and all the fans of what we call Chief's Kingdom thought he was crazy. And all I knew was... Um, now that I have my chance, I better not watch any television, not uh, read any newspapers, just stick to doing what I have to do.
0: So okay. well, there we go. So, then so, I may... so I have to ask you, because I'm sure there's people listening going, you know, my goodness, if somebody tells me 11 times, some of them over and over again, that I'm not good enough, why on earth would I give up this cushy job that I love to go Suffer that abuse again. What was that for you that made you decide that that was a good idea? You know, um,
1: football's about seasons and life is about seasons. And I know the Absolutely. that would allow me to play pro football was then, when I was tw- then 24. I'd actually played two games for the New England Patriots, fresh out of college. We won both games, but I just wasn't ready for prime time, and I knew it. You know, and even though I had a chance and I, I tried out and put myself out there, and that was the beginning of putting myself out there, um, I knew I had to just be ready for this very unique situation. You know, it's sort of like how can you become a brain surgeon or, a, you know, uh, transplant hearts or a, be a rocket ship astronaut or whatever it is. Uh, human beings are extraordinary if they are incredibly focused at doing one thing in a great way. And I just knew I had to keep putting myself out there to get to that next level because it wasn't just the physical part. It was the psychological part. It was the part where you're on the sidelines the whole game. And then suddenly you have to run out and kick a 55-yarder to win the game. And you haven't had time to warm up except kicking into a little net on the sidelines, which is not like running out in front of 80,000 screaming fans. Uh, And if it's an away game, you know, a large part of them are yelling beautiful sonnets of love at you and often uh, very creative (laughs) instructions uh, and stories about your mom and what you could do with a ball (laughs) yeah what you can do with a ball so uh that's another part of the of getting used to it so i mean you think about a ballerina and how she has to prepare and then suddenly she's on stage and there's no one helping her and she has to drill it right then in front of the audience with great perfection and yet make it look effortless so You know, it's amazing what the human spirit and the human mind can do, and I think the human soul can do when it's aligned in the right way, you believe that what you're doing is worth it, that you were here to do it, Um, and then also that the process will make you a better person no matter what happens.
0: Absolutely. So you were a glutton for punishment. You went back. You won the job, and you continued to play. You played with them for 14 years. You did well. What made you quit? Well wanted to do something else.
1: I actually played then another three years with the New York jets, but but then there there are two parts to there are many parts to success, but I will say there are a couple parts in particular. One is that beautiful Hollywood story of making it. if you're lucky enough to have made it, which is not really so much luck is persistence, focus, and just a relentless relentless vigilance to do it. Then you make it. And then you prove you can be one of the best kickers in the NFL. I'm on 2020 on ABC featured. I'm in Sports Illustrated. I kick the game-winning field goal in the Pro Bowl with 17 Hall of Famers like Jack Lambert and John Hanna and uh, Lynn Swan and Dan Fouts. Um, you know, just all these wow. legends of the game. And I come into the locker, Marlene, and there, are 20, and there are 20 television cameras in there. And it's a great moment. It's not winning the Super Bowl, but it's a great moment. And um, Steve Large, and I'll just name all these different great players, uh, Earl Campbell um, and uh, Ted Hendricks. I mean, they're all right there. But as soon as the cameras started to leave, as soon as the, my teammates started to leave, I felt this vacuum uh, as if I was just lacking oxygen something was missing. And that led me to believe the second part of success, which is to redefine success as being able to share it in those moments of success. Make sure that you have planned from the beginning that you will share your success with your children, with your parents, with your brothers and sisters and friends that would be there if you were homeless. They would be there no matter what. Share it with them, celebrate them, make that important because what happens? You've seen it over and over again. Hollywood stars, music stars—you know, Jimi Hendrix—and so many examples, thousands every year. Uh, people that are successes make it to the mountaintop and then they commit suicide, or they just never regain that same level because right. they haven't made sure that success was really about feeling, celebrating life, not just mm-hmm. about you and this one thing. And so the second part was realizing and loving the work to always, always, always keep working to get better, keep working to loving, proving yourself, loving to see how good you can get. And that's the second part I would call craftsmanship. Mm -hmm. Go from the apprentice who's trying to make it and figuring it out, maybe bringing some new things to the table to being a craftsman, to being a mentor craftsman where you can, just by your example, others can learn. Brian Barker, I was just with him in Jacksonville, he was didn't make it until he was 26 in the National Football League, and still ended up playing 16 years. Every time right. I, he was my my uh, punter for my our punter and my holder for field goals for uh, four years. And he said, you know, Nick, I never knew what it was like to be a craftsman, to be a professional, until I watched you. Not during games, but what you did to prepare all the time. And it right. helped. Me. And, and here's a guy that started so late, and yet he had a great long career. Ended up playing on a Pro Bowl team, and was All Pro one year. Um, and how gratifying is that uh, when not only is your performance helping, but it's inspiring other teammates to raise their game. That's why I think this great quarterback at the age of 25 Patrick mm-hmm. Holmes, uh, is so wise beyond his years. He's an old soul. And like <laughs> Michael Jordan, like the true greats in sport, they make everybody around them better.
0: Right. Well, and I I love the sharing your story part because what you might not know about me is I'm a book writing coach. And so I encourage people to tell their story, to share their story in a book so that they can inspire the people who come up behind them. And so if anybody out there is listening to this story and says, Um, oh, I got a story, I want to write a book, go to my website, bookwritingbusiness.com, find out when my next course is or when my next webinar is or send me some information about your story on the contact page and let's talk because it's in sharing these stories that we realize how blessed we are, I think, but I think we also, at least I do, I don't want to talk to you, but I feel like in sharing my story it's part of my responsibility to play it forward. What do you think?
1: Well, I think, you know, the stories, and, and that's a big theme right now, you know, when you, you hear about fake news, and you hear about in media today, whatever side of the political spectrum you're on, mm-hmm. the stories that are told define the values of a culture. They, like Arnold Toynbee would say, they, if you were telling stories defined by the heroes that were unlikely heroes, that found a way. I mean, one of the great books uh, growing up, The Red Badge of Courage, is oh. about a young man who's dreaming of being a, a success on the battlefield. And by the way, battlefield is not the only way you can be a hero, please. Mm-hmm. But in this case, that's it's an old antiquated cultural norm, by the way. Right. Um, but he's thinking he's going to be a hero and he actually retreats uh, and feels like a coward, you know, that he's run away from the action, that he is destined to look at himself as a failure and as a coward. And, um, and then he's, leaning against a tree, thinking about these things. And then wouldn't you know, there's another chance for a charge and he ends up being the hero.
0: Right.
1: You know, for those of us that are hiding against that tree, having thought that we had retreated from the confrontation Mm -hmm. with our destiny and the chance to do something great, take a deep breath. Right. Listen to that beautiful part of us that's, You can call it God. You can call it just the wisdom that God's given us to pay attention. And then it's never our timing in the end. It's it's God's timing, I believe. Absolutely. By hanging in there and doing our work and and opening our space to be creative, amazing
0: things can can happen. Absolutely. And so I want to go from the football success in that career and talk a little bit. You got a master's degree from Harvard. I mean, that's not a slouch thing to do. I mean, really. <laughs> and then it was in public administration. Why public administration? Well,
1: um, I read a lot of poetry, by the way. Um, <laughs> poetry and public administration. Okay. <laughs> yeah. And the was I've been, been invited to write, read my poetry at Harvard from my friend Kelly McVeary, who was a master's candidate at the Harvard School of Education. And it was in Harvard Square. And uh, while I was there, I started a program four years earlier called Native Vision, which was a sports and life skills camp with Native American kids, uh, with Johns Hopkins Center for American Indian um, Health, and with the NFL Players Association, who I asked to help out. And um, we started as a football camp. We'd grown to add soccer and volleyball and basketball. And we were growing. And we actually were on Oprah at that point, uh, as the best new program for Native youth. And so I said to myself, while I'm there, I might as well meet with the head of the Harvard Native American program, whose Mm. name is Robin McClay. And I met with him at Pete's Coffee, just off Harvard Square. And he was wearing a black uh, leather jacket. And uh, we talked for a bit. And he said, you know, you should apply for the Harvard Mid-Career Program. And at that point, I'd worked in my off seasons for – uh, four U.S. senators, uh, for the chairman of the House Rules Committee, committee uh, Dick Bowling, for the Secretary of Transportation, Elizabeth Dole, for the um, for President Reagan and drug abuse policy, as you mentioned, for H.W. Bush the next year, helping launch AmeriCorps, excuse me, the Points of Light Foundation, and then four years later, helping launch AmeriCorps for President Clinton. And he thought, you know, you, with your experience, this might be pretty cool. And I thought, you know, if it's time to retire from the NFL, this is a pretty good way to do it. So I applied in their wisdom, they accepted me, and uh, and I had two years there. I not only did I get my master's, uh, I did a, a follow-up fellowship, which is about a half-step above a master's, uh, in leadership programs, experiential leadership with my passion uh, for Native youth, because I believe that if uh, social capital is taken from a community and a culture and a, and a civilization, uh, that helping to understand how you can rebuild and accelerate the development of new social capital is how you build um, back um, a, uh, a healing culture like Native American culture. Absolutely, absolutely. Uh, so I've been doing leadership programs with Native youth now for 24 years. And uh, it's taught me a lot about um, just about learning and how you help attract somebody's mind to something that they can remember and then use. Absolutely. Learn remember, bring back, and then apply. And then, of course, fine-tune, which is you know what an athlete has to do. So it's really like a living athlete. So uh, it was a wonderful experience. We had people from 80 countries. We had wow, um, 99 foreigners. We had 100 um, uh, U.S.-born uh, people. And so you had exposure to an extraordinary variety of people. And, um, and I actually kept doing a little bit of broadcasting for ESPN and ABC – that first year, which was crazy, um, <laughs> and, uh, you know, got to meet and work with and study under some phenomenal people, uh, one of which was Alex Jones from the Harvard Shorenstein Center on Press and Public Policy. So I got to think about media and its role. and It's one reason why I'm really passionate about the disappointment uh, that I'm witnessing right now, with um, just the the shortcomings, the lack of depth in telling stories, whoever you're covering in the political sphere, like the national debate tonight and how important that is and helping cut through to you know who's really saying the most and what the real stories are, the stories we tell are by
0: the deepest level, um, what are the values of our culture so absolutely so well I, and you know, you went through this pretty fast because you know your story, but I thought it was really interesting and you brought up what's happening today. You worked for three U.S. presidents Reagan, Bush, and Clinton. Now, actually, four because uh, Clinton nominated me
1: uh, to be a founding director of the National Fund for American Indian Education. And then when he finished, uh, those uh, nine directors uh, were disbanded. Uh, w. didn't do. W. Bush, who was the next president, uh, didn't do anything. And then two years later, he renominated me, and I was the only one that continued. And I ended up being two years after that, the chairman of the National Fund. I was the only Caucasian member of that. And I got to testify before the U.S. Senate before Senator Ben Nighthorse Campbell in 2003, who was chairman of the uh, U.S. Senate Committee on Indian Affairs, and then John McCain. And um, so I really did kind of work for W. Bush as well on seeing what we could do to help bring new resources to Native American education.
0: Right. Well, and, and I love the Native American Youth Program because you started it with just focusing on football, and you grew to, what, a half a dozen other sports involved? Yep. And then you talk about all these other mentors from all these other countries, and you were working with youth. You started on ten um, with 10 tribes, and you grew into 40. Yeah. To me, that's got to be... Oh very fulfilling that you're, and, and it's a population that I think has been overlooked and neglected for way too long. And well, that's a whole nother show, but anyway, um, that's, is this program still going today? Because I, I, I admire this. I think it's a really, really important. Native vision, and I want to give credit to Allison Barlow
1: and Clark Haynes and the Players Association. Allison is still the director uh, of programs for the, um, the Johns Hopkins Center for American Indian Health, and what it did was, instead of just medical research, it was creating a socializing opportunity for Native youth to realize that professional athletes and plenty of Olympic gold medalists and, you know, really high-achieving coaches and athletes uh, were paid nothing just because they respect and love Native American youth, and and so one of the things I want to share with you, Arlene, is, um, you know, when you hear about Black Lives Matter, Blue Lives Matter, whatever it is, or whatever change you want to see in the world, Mm
0: -hmm.
1: one thing, and it's great to start something, it's great to, even better to do it for three, four, five years, but what I'm really proud of is that Native Vision is now in its 23rd year, and I had a a man named Danny Clark on Shipwalk, New Mexico, on our 20th anniversary come up to me and say, hey, I'm a cheese fan, can I have an autograph, I gave him an autograph on a nice <laughs> little poster and two weeks later he called me and said i'm making you a um, a bracelet and i wear that i'm not wearing it right now darn it but uh here's oh. a bracelet actually
0: uh-huh.
1: uh, oh that's beautiful but uh it was on the 20th anniversary and and i i wear that almost every day because if you really want to make change in the world make a commitment everybody said you know for a lifetime but how about 20 years 20 years now. All those kids, when we started in 1996 in uh, Chinle on the Navajo Reservation, those 90 kids from from 10 tribes, um, all those kids now are not 15, 16, 17. You know, they mm-hmm. are 40 and 42, and and they have two or three or four or five kids, and. No longer from can any Native American kids say there's no one out there. that pro athletes, Olympic gold medalists would never want to come out to the reservation just because they love us. Now, has that changed the world? Yeah, I think it has. How much? I don't know, but I know it's helped one and it's probably helped a lot more. When I yeah. see say the today, there's still lots of problems. There are lots of problems with rich kids too, by the way, uh, yeah. that haven't found their purpose and think money's the solution. But right. those kids now in Native country Uh, And I want to give a shout out to Mary Kim Titla, my friend and colleague with United National Indian Tribal Youth, which is a partner and the the best Native leadership program. But those kids have more confidence now. They have confidence and belief that they not only uh, want to make a difference, but they can. Right, absolutely. When you've made a real difference and you know it, what kind of mentor do you become to some other child that's thinking, some other friend, whoever it is, that might think I really haven't done much with your, with my life. And you can say, well,
0: yeah, well, time? you plant, you plant that seed because if you hadn't mentored them, they wouldn't even know that mentoring was possible. And, you know, it's like that, that you drop the pebble and you create these ripples and, you know, When I was younger, it used to stress me out and I would have nightmares thinking, I will never make a difference in the world. I will never change the world. And then at one of those two o'clock in the morning sitting on the toilet kind of moments, I know probably TMI, you know, where God goes, hello, you don't have to change the world. You just start to change your world one person at a time and you plant that seed you water that seed you nurture that seed and then you watch the ripples go and you do that in all these different places and then those ripples begin to combine and that's how you change the world and you're blessed because you know that you've made changes there are other people who may never know what kind of changes they made by getting out there but it doesn't mean they didn't make a difference if you get out there and you try you absolutely will make a difference
1: you know, I think of uh, living here in, in Phoenix, Arizona. I go up to Sedona. And one beautiful. of my hikes uh, leads me up to a promontory where I, I get a 360-degree view of, of Sedona and the Red Rocks. It's just beautiful. But there are trees? trees, when you look closely, that literally have found a way to grow through a crack in the rock. Mm-hmm. A tree has grown yeah. through the tr- a crack in the rock and is out there where there's almost no rain. And it, it's, it looks like it's definitely had its challenges, but it's living. It's like, I'm here and you ain't going to stop me. And I think, you know, there are lots of people, if they would just hang in there and keep being creative, they will find uh, an intellectual, uh, spiritual, and a neural pathway uh, through their brain, will literally find a way through, directly through or around traumas or limitations Somebody telling them they were not smart. Somebody telling them they weren't good enough. And and they create a way around to that place where now they are
0: powerful. Absolutely. Absolutely. So I want to talk a little bit because you have taken your knowledge and your passion for football, which some people would say just football, and you really are using it to go in and change people's lives and within the football industry, but then beyond. So tell us a little bit about the foundations you've created and the work you're doing. Let's start with football players.
1: Well, football players was, you know, with the NFL Players Association, because I think that uh, people like Pelham McDaniels, who actually just died, but but was part of our program. uh, He went on to be a, a, a professor of history at, uh, at, at Emory College. And, you know, I think that those experiences, they, they bounce off and, and the players themselves go, here's there's more to life than just my impact as a football player, my impact, you know, what can that be? Um, but, you know, right now I'd say, gosh, I love the work I do with, with CBD and helping with chronic traumatic encephalopathy and, and concussions. Working, I, I hosted a, a workshop a year ago for veterans um, and suicide with the President's mm-hmm. Director of the Prevents Task Force. But my number one uh, passion right now uh, for the last 15 years is called Champions for the Homeless. And even though it sounds pretty different, uh, perhaps from the Leadership Programs for Native Youth, the principles still apply. They're about a person feeling vital again, feeling mm-hmm. like you know life is still worth living. And, and we have grown from 20 volunteers uh, in – gosh, what year was that, 2005, to 500 people on Thanksgiving, Christmas, Easter, and twice in the summer, um, giving love, we give out flowers, we give out literally 1,000 gift certificates to 1,000 homeless people, and let me tell you, Thanksgiving, Christmas, and Easter never felt quite right until I started doing this, they always felt they were about too much about the narcissism and give me, give me, give me culture, dad, you know what I mean? you're not being happy because I I got a bike, but what else to add? You know, what a selfish attitude when it's supposed to be Thanksgiving or Christmas, you know, and and Easter, even rebirth, right? So, and then we started doing it in the summer too. And that's really helped a lot of people, very successful people who have felt empty because they had financial success. They had success, but they did not really feel successful. They certainly didn't feel fulfilled. So I love that work. And by the way, how much more fulfilling is it than when you have a real conversation with a homeless person who had all these levels, all these shades and, and layers of, of deep human suffering mm-hmm. that had hardened the shell around their soul, and you see it melt away because they feel safe, they feel respected, they feel affirmed. And there's something about, you know, the Bible talks about when any, any two or three of you uh, are together in my name, mm-hmm. I will be there. Well, there are 500, and how powerful is that? And so I see these miracles, and, uh, and we keep running a program. But um, the point is that that's just what I do, and everybody can find what is unique to their gifts mm-hmm. and use those gifts, not my gifts. Kicking field goals is probably not your gift.
0: Mm-hmm. But
1: find <laughs> that gift that you have, and sometimes it's a gift of discernment. You know, it's not necessarily anything physical, but it's a wisdom of understanding human beings and their energies and what drives them.
0: Absolutely. And the home, I happen to be doing a lot of research for a client right now on homelessness. And, you know, we've got the veterans veterans population, which, according to the government, has been, you know, being is being addressed. And the part of the population that's really growing right now is single moms and children in the homeless population. And, um, you know, children come up that way and they see that as normal and they don't, you know, that's what they see, that's what they know. So if people come in and give them, you know, talk to them and treat them like human beings and give them respect and show them what's possible for them, it is amazing the way it can change a person's perspective and a person's life. Um so you, you hit on another population that I happen to, I happen to love. So
1: um,
0: to working with and nurturing.
1: I uh, narrated a film uh, with, uh, that was directed and produced by a woman named Sue Vickery. I always like to try to remember to give credit to the people that you know gave me an opportunity. And it's called Homelessness. If you look it up, Homelessness and the Power of One, I was able to narrate it. But even back then, there was a 1,000% increase in pediatric homelessness. We have a huge increase in the number of people with two degrees that are homeless. And by the way, with COVID, there are all these studies now and research about people that are shut in, that are isolated, that don't have the human touch, human exposure. Suicide rates today on television. There is, in addition to, by the way, uh, the the official figure of 22 suicides a day is actually 27 for the for veterans, 27 mm-hmm. a day. But right now because of this being shut in and not having exposure to other people, sunlight of life and experience and stimulation, uh, that's gone up 20%. And in the army, it's a thirty percent increase since COVID started of suicide. So uh, we have to not only um, value and respect and protect the people that, that might have COVID, we know comorbidities and age has a huge parts to, to do with it, but also people that don't have COVID but simply are being isolated. And the long-term impacts right. of that, along with, of course, losing jobs, losing employment, and
0: all those other things. Well, so I like that you've been working in the government and you're working with these populations that need that, that human connection. But I think that, you know, I don't want to get too deeply into politics, but it did not escape my attention that you were involved in two programs that you know, we still know of today the thousand points of light and the um, Americorps. So, you know, that's a legacy. Um, and and I also noticed that three out of the four presidents were on opposite sides. So you're you're saying? I mean, are you just weird? You're saying that we can get across aisles and work on things that make a difference.
1: Uh, <laughs> not weird i just believe that parties today are bankrupt uh because they've forgotten that their service is to people and to the other citizens of this country wherever they come from however they look and instead it's been about money and party and i'm party. for follow solvers and that's it yeah um, i'm not sure if i'm a you know whatever <laughs> category I, you know why we always have to look for more categories but i think that it's about solving problems and You know, one big thing, by the way, with regard to our leadership program is creative problem solving and being able to think critically, you know, to be able to say, where is this story coming from? What's the motive? What's the timing? And let's look deeper. How validated is the story? Because we now have a huge, uh, probably not uh, exponential, but 10 times exponential increase in misinformation. As someone who's the child of a CIA senior officer back when it really was a great uh, institution, you know, with an idealistic institution, it still has a very important part to play. Uh, It's all about being able to separate out bad information and deliberately deceitful information from good information that pulls us forward. And the great majority of Americans love this country and they want it to be the best it can be. And then by doing that and believing in that, acting on that, we all become the best we can.
0: Absolutely. And I think that there's so much focus right now on what divides us. And people are yelling at each other. Nobody's listening. And I think that if we just sit down and talk, that I think we might actually find that we have more in common than not. What do you think in your experience?
1: My experience is working for Senator John Chafee, who is uh, featured in a book uh, by Stephen Ambrose, one of the great military historians. He's, he's, his character, he says in the foreword, Ambrose says is modeled after uh, Senator Chafee and who goes on to be an extraordinary Republican senator, but also somebody who crossed the aisle, somebody who uh, represented a very democratic state in Rhode Island. And then I worked for Bob Packwood, who was also uh, a moderate Republican. Then I worked for Tom Eagleton, who was a great historian. And I actually had to study the rise of Roosevelt, FDR in 1932 versus the rise of Reagan in 1982. Mm-hmm. And look at those things and um, in the end, those people always put solving problems and making the world better. In this case for Chafee, it was the Clean Air Act. It was the Clean Water Act. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, even though he was a Republican, with the image of Republicans not being so much about the environment, he was the number one rated environmentalist on Capitol Hill when I worked for him albeit a long time ago, about 40 years ago.
0: Absolutely. So you need to write a book, Nick. Do you have a book? Your story needs to be written down. My book should be called Procrastination because I have two hundred,
1: <laughs> 219 pages and I just need to, to finish it. And, and frankly, hearing this, it's just one more confirmation, I need to get it done. But I'm spending my time doing those things. And the good news is, in the time since I stopped at 219 pages, Uh, As I go back now, I have more to give to it. But, you know, I think in the end, I've just got to get it done.
0: Well, I got to tell you, I don't believe in accidents. I believe in divine intervention. So just saying, you happen to have a book writing business coach in front of you. So we should connect. But besides that, I want to put you on the hot seat for a moment because this is about mindsets. So... I usually ask my guests, is it okay if I put you on the hot seat? But somebody said, well, don't ask. What are you going to do if someone says no? So I'm not going to ask. I'm just going to put you on the hot seat. You ready? Mm-hmm. That's, the same, that's a question that you could say no to. So i got to get rid of that one too. So the program is called Mindset Meets Mastery. So was there ever a time that you had a mindset that if you had focused on it, could have really stopped you from becoming the person you are today?
1: Well, I mean, I, I just use the analogy of having a time when I missed a big field goal. You know, I didn't miss many, um, and I, it was so traumatizing—probably too strong a word, but I mean, it is its own form of PTSD, right? It's not about your right. life and limb, but it is how you see yourself. Do you see yourself as someone who comes through or not? And um, I remember waking up in the middle of the night after missing a 44-yard field goal. I remember it uh, over the left hat, uh, over the left upright against the Buffalo Bills. And I felt terrible. And I kept dreaming that night afterwards, it's going through, make it go through. And I just had to dedicate myself to, you know, to getting better. And a big part of that was working through what my priorities were. And what mm-hmm. I came to realize is most people, if you write down, everybody writes down that's listening right now, uh, their 10 top values mm-hmm. or priorities of values. I wanna be adventurous. I wanna be courageous. I wanna be um, secure and safe. All these different life choices of the quality literally like a painting you know what is the painting with its particular emphasis and um i really believe if we do the hard work and decide what are the top two what are the top two are they adventure because if you have adventure and security you're going to be fighting yourself all the time so what are the top two for you well i i think it's 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 sacrifice or service and it's adventure. It's the adventure of service. It's always picking that chance. So I'm asked to do a lot and help out a lot of different programs. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I try to whenever I can. Now, by the way, burnout doesn't help. So being able to have balance is important. But when you're doing something at, at my ripe old age now, it, it's almost like the things I get involved with, all this past experience just blesses my insight into how I can help. And uh, there's nothing. There's nothing more rewarding than to see. And I'm going to tell you a story right now. This, um, because it's so beautiful. Um, in 1989, I uh, was doing a program called Adult Role Models for You.
0: Wow.
1: And or Army, and I started it with the mayor of Kansas City, and all the sports teams had committed their athletes to one time a month, two hours, to work with inner city youth, and. Um, so it was a great program. It grew into something called Youth Friends and uh, ended up having 3,000 volunteers with all the school districts and the 38 youth serving agencies in Kansas City. But then I left and went to the New York Jets and then I moved to Arizona. And You know, you wonder what your impact is. And they're just these beautiful little angels that come back that uh, tap you on the shoulder. And In this case, I was at the Western Crown Center in Kansas City and an African-American man in a sweatshirt, was sitting two tables over. And I finished uh, brunch Sunday brunch with a friend of mine. My friend got up and as he got up walked away, this man came over and he said, can I join you for a second? And he said, sure. And he goes, you won't remember me, but you and Kevin Ross, who was a teammate back then and now is a coach with uh, Bruce Arians with the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, said you and and Kevin Ross spoke to my my team when uh, my mother was in prison I didn't know where my dad was. um, He said, you inspired me. And I remember from that moment, I said to myself, I want to be like him. I want to do something that makes a real difference. He said, so as soon as I could, uh, in my early 20s, I bought a home on a block that became a halfway house, if you will, but it became a place where my mother getting out of prison could live and have some stability because when you're in prison and you serve your time, it's almost impossible to get employed. So this right. horrible cycle. He said, I now own every single home on that block. And wow. it's for people coming out of prison. You know, That's how, cool. how beautiful and unusual, original and fantastic a contribution he's making. And so you never know the impact you have. And so, you know, to me, the other idea is instead of looking for the outcome and what you're getting back from it, I like just, uh, one, one analogy is uh, angel dust, or you can just say, put mud at the wall, baby, and some of it will <laughs> stick. And some Absolutely. Of it or these are seeds. You're planting seeds, another analogy.
0: Yeah. And
1: um, you never know when. Different people will take that seed, different seeds at different times, but if you keep putting them out there, uh, you're going to have impact. And, and that, yeah. that's the way to do it because I think, like I said earlier on, it's always God's timing.
0: And if it comes Absolutely. from a more pure place, then it has a chance to just happen as it's been to. Absolutely. So we're winding down, we're running out of time. So, Nick, can you tell people how they can find you if they want yes. to get in contact?
1: Uh, my email is nick at speaks. Nick at LowrySpeaks.com. If you want to check out my website, it's um <clears throat> nick lowry There's some nice pieces there on our work with Champions for the Homeless. We've conducted 500 tests, free tests for the homeless and veterans over the last five months. We only had five positive, which is kind of interesting. Yeah. Um, we developed some clear masks for hearing impaired uh, and people that anybody that wants to have a more human experience with masks. Um, so that gives you an idea of some of the, the things we do.
0: Well, cool. So I thank you so much for your time today. I know you're really busy and in high demand. You're doing some wonderful things. Um, I hope that the listeners got some hope from this and it may have changed their mindset to not give up or to fine tune directions or, you know, to go out and make a difference. So I appreciate there. There's so much we could talk for hours. There's so much that you're doing that I think people can relate to. So I just want to thank you so much for your time.
1: What you're doing. I like to
0: say it's not the brightness of
1: the spotlight on us. It's the light.
0: I, I agree. I think there's so much we agree on. So, um, again, thank you very much for your time. People find Nick Lowry. I'm assuming that you can come out and speak to groups or you're looking for fundraisers or money to support your groups, your foundations. Yeah, yep. in fact, uh, we're doing a fundraiser for Champions for the
1: Homeless. If you go to fundduel, F- excuse me, F-U-N-D-D-U-E-L, forward slash Nick the Kicks, we have a fundraiser. For champions for the homeless because you might imagine that it's uh, different right now. We can't feed and touch homeless people in the normal way we can. Right. Um, and so we're finding ways to uh, keep that message and support them. Even That's great.
0: So everybody look for Nick and help him to get side by side with him to make the world a better place. But I'm going to leave you with this thought. Until next time, be mindful of the stories you tell yourself about what is or is not possible for you. Don't let anyone else dictate your story. Only you have the power to choose to master your success on your terms. And when you're ready to write your story, you can reach me, Arlene Gale, at bookwritingbusiness.com. Thank you for joining Mindset Meets Mastery with Arlene Gale, the expert in helping people write business building books. Join us every Tuesday at 3 p.m. Pacific Time on BBS Radio when we'll talk more about how mindsets help or hinder success mastery. Please visit BookWritingBusiness.com to get more information on writing your professional or personal story. Oh,